Why should promoting and expanding the health for women, whether girls or adults, why should that be a conservative versus liberal issue? It shouldn't be. I would give the Biden administration a failing grade. Can you believe that the people who claim to be pro-woman can't actually define what a woman is? I have a simple question for them. How can you defend what you can't define? Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. This week, we're going to pull back the curtain on the hypocrisy of the left's so-called pro-woman agenda. In reality, it's often pro-woman in name only. It's a screen they hide behind to push a whole host of radical far-left policies. And when you peel back the layers, you'll find that those policies are often actually extremely harmful to women. As the father of four, including three daughters, and a husband of 25 years, this is something that tremendously concerns me, as I'm sure it does you. In today's show, we're not only going to expose some of the more hideous proposals currently coming from the left in Washington, and that's saying something, we're also going to look at what being authentically pro-woman actually looks like with our guest, Valerie Huber, president of the Institute for Women's Health. And later, we'll talk about how international organizations are actively hurting women and young girls. But first, if this is your first time watching or listening to the show, welcome. Each week on The Kevin Roberts Show, we're charging the hills, taking on the critical issues to keep America free and prosperous. And we're equipping you to join us in that fight. So please be sure to subscribe. Look, let me just cut to the chase and say that the radical left wants you to believe they're pro-woman. But it's just another way they manipulate identity groups for their own personal gain. This is really all about the left's political coalition. They only see women as a voting bloc. If you're not convinced, just remember a couple weeks ago when Judge Jackson, during her confirmation hearings to be on the Supreme Court, which of course she will now soon join, was asked these relevant questions by Senator Lee, by Senator Cruz. She simply refused to defend what womanhood is. It's embarrassing, but really it's even more telling about how radical this agenda is. For that matter, if you or I start talking about mothers on some social media channels, we will get slapped on the wrist at the very least for not calling them birthing persons. This is like some science fiction novel. And ultimately what this means is that men can just declare that they're all of a sudden women and demand the very rights of women. Look, five or 10 years ago, when the transgender agenda was really becoming prominent, and I started being concerned about this. This, by the way, is what led to my decision as president of Wyoming Catholic College to reject federal student loans and grants. That is, this is the issue that convinced me that the radical left was going to use institutions like that, and now institutions that are dear to all of us, regardless of where we go to church, if we go to church, as cudgels against the truth. I knew that the left was on the march, and I'm sorry to say that they continue to be so. But don't give up hope. We're going to give you a little bit of optimism here. But before we get to the optimism, let me just sort of diagnose this problem for you a little more fully. Ultimately, the left's policies actually hurt women. As an example, consider for those of you who are sports fans, although you wouldn't have to be a sports fan to know what a big problem this is, the problem of transgenderism and athletics. It, it is destroying women's sports. As I mentioned, I'm the dad of four children. Three of them are girls. They all enjoy sports. My younger sister, a very serious athlete. If any of them were engaged in serious athletics today, I'd have to make the decision to pull them out. 
And the reason is that just a very small percentage of Americans, a very small, a minuscule percentage of Americans are challenging truth and changing the way women, young girls for that matter, can participate in something as simple and as innocent as athletics. There are many examples of this in federal law. The so-called Equality Act, the Equal Rights Amendment, the Violence Against Women Act. Thankfully, we are, on the right, able to push against a lot of these crazy efforts from the left. Take, for example, one of those crazy efforts, the Equality Act. This criminalizes Americans for their beliefs about traditional marriage and sex. What the, the, the Equality Act, if fully implemented, would do is impose the left's belief that abortion has contributed to women's economic and social advancement. There are a lot of critiques one may make about that, but one of them would be the self-evident one, which is that something like 60 million babies have been aborted since the Roe versus Wade decision. The way demographics work, 51% of them were, were, were girls. Obviously, this is just by definition something that is not pro-woman. But it gets worse because the so-called women's health organization Planned Parenthood, which is supposed to be providing pregnancy assistance outside of abortion, of course, primarily is focused on abortion. So women and girls have been told that they can't be moms and have a successful career, or that having kids is incompatible with their educational or financial goals. Children and motherhood are cast as burdens to be avoided at all costs, rather than gifts to be cherished and accommodated. And I really want to just consider that point for a moment. There are a lot of thoughtful people in America, thankfully today, like our, our guest, you'll soon meet Valerie Huber, who makes that who make that point. And it is that whether you're a Democrat or Republican, a liberal or conservative, we ought to all agree on a few things. One of them would be that children and motherhood are, in fact, not burdens to be avoided. But look, abortion on demand is sadly presented as a solution for inequality in the workplace, in higher education, in society at large. We know that any quote-unquote solution that involves intentionally destroying innocent human life isn't a solution at all. In short, abortion hurts, not helps women. And yet, this so-called pro-woman president, Joe Biden, is pushing for mail-order, do-it-yourself, at-home abortions, which obviously makes it easier for coerced abortions, something that we ought to concern us. I would imagine even people who would stand up for abortion rights would think that that coercion would be a real problem. But of course, they can't voice this amid the radical left. And it goes without saying, but I will emphasize it, these kinds of abortions in particular pose even more serious health risks for mothers, even beyond the typical health risks that abortion in general does for them. Take a second example. The Equal Rights Amendment would have been a disaster. The left won't stop trying to, to pass it, but its goals have already been achieved. In other words, just by trying to get that constitutional amendment ratified, the left has been working socially and culturally in our schools, for that matter, in our churches, in our workplaces, essentially to implement it by default. It was all about enshrining things like abortion in state constitutions. And then, of course, something that those of us on the right have been fighting here in D.C. for the, the better part of the last year, the Violence Against Women Act. Sounds great. No one supports violence against women. You see, the left is really good about giving evil concepts really sweet-sounding names. This would be at the top of the list in 2022. The Violence Against Women Act would force women into intimate spaces with men who identify as women. Obviously, that's a problem, 
But beyond that, this is a typical example right now of, of ideas from the radical left that pushes the concept of equity instead of the concept of equality. And if you think about what this country has sacrificed, people of all backgrounds, all skin colors, to achieve the promise of equality, you know that inserting equity instead of equality is a real problem. But look, I have a lot of opinions on this. I would like to think all of them are informed. Certainly the opinions of my colleagues here at the Heritage Foundation who work on these matters are very informed. But today we're going to focus on what being pro-woman actually looks like, specifically in the area of women's health. To do that, we're going to talk to a real visionary, a real leader in this area. And it's my friend Valerie Huber, president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Health. As part of the Trump administration, Valerie led a coalition to protect women from a leftist agenda by helping them make choices that promoted both the dignity of life as well as their health. But before we talk to Valerie, I want Sarah Perry, one of our experts here at Heritage, to dive a little further into Title IX. Don't forget to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. We really appreciate it because that helps us to reach more people with this kind of critical content. Stay with us. I'll be right back with Valerie Huber. My name is Sarah Parshall Perry, and I'm a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I'm also a mom, and I'm angry. Women's safety, security, and equality is on the chopping block. The Biden administration is about to drop a new regulation that declares that Title IX is broken. What was hailed as a feminist triumph 50 years ago this June is now looking more like a battering ram. Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 prohibits sex discrimination in any federally funded educational program. It's increased women's participation in school sports by 1,000% and provides equal opportunities for women and girls in all school programs, leading to their success later in life. The Department of Education plans to redefine sex in Title IX to include gender identity. This change will affect every private space, housing accommodation, bathroom, locker room, sports program, or other offering at any educational institution funded by government dollars. Men have distinct, unchangeable physical advantages over women, from greater lung capacity to higher muscle mass, and their inclusion in women's sports will destroy Title IX. That means the protections I had as a teenager are about to be torn away from my own teenage daughter. Womanhood is not puberty blockers, surgery, lipstick, or clothing. Womanhood is not a costume. It is an immutable, biological, chromosomal reality that can't be overcome, and it deserves the continued protections of Title IX. After all, what was the women's liberation movement for? Valerie, thanks so much for joining me. We have a really important topic to cover here. You lead the Institute for Women's Health. You are a pro-woman organization, and I love that messaging. Being someone who grew up with sisters, who has three daughters in addition to a son, and I just love the work that you do. Tell our audience, in case they're not familiar with your work, what it is that you do. Well, it's wonderful to be here. I really appreciate it, and I am so honored, really, to lead the Institute for Women's Health. 
we want to clear the path mm -hmm. so that authentic health gains can be made for women, not only here in the United States, but across the world, particularly in those developing regions. Mm -hmm. What we found, unfortunately, is that too often women's health is conflated with controversial issues mm -hmm. like abortion and other things. And who's the loser in those battles? It's the women who right. were designed and should really be caring about putting the priority there rather than ideology. Yeah, that's really important. So tell us now that you've kind of given us the 30,000 foot view of what your organization does. Let's step into a little more detail, whether that detail is particular countries mm -hmm. where there are those controversial issues ongoing. In other words, I'd love for our audience to get a sense of what you do on the ground, so to speak. Yeah. Well, you know, we learned a couple of years ago, actually, that in the developing world particularly, if you were to just travel to virtually any one of those countries, you would see some things mm. repeated over and over and over. And it's based on where the priorities are for aid-giving countries. So you will see women, for example, dying from totally preventable causes, mm. whether it's during childbirth, whether it's something related to not having proper nutrition early right. on, things such as that. And they're unnecessarily suffering or dying simply because there has been over many decades priorities on particular hot button issues, some of them good, mm -hmm. some of them not so good, but they're not specifically tagged on those areas that the women in those countries actually need to thrive. And when I talk about women, I'm talking about women from the first thousand days of life until death. Right. So in, in the Trump administration, you were working on something, if I remember correctly, called the Geneva Consensus Declaration. And that really gets to this broader scope of issues. We're going to talk about the contrast in a minute between the Trump administration and the current administration. But before we get there, give us a sense of what y'all were trying to accomplish with that declaration. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because the Geneva Consensus Declaration and the coalition that came out of that was a first ever in history kind of coalition. Very top level among countries. And this coalition was so important, in fact, that usually the heads of state needed to make the determination whether or not that country joined. Okay. Here's why it came to be. I was responsible for global women's health mm -hmm. uh, under the Trump administration, promoting the expansion of women's health in the multilateral fora, places mm -hmm. like the United Nations, the World Health Organization, but also bilaterally among different countries. Mm -hmm. And I found two different things really coming forth as a result of that. The first was among developing countries, they knew what the needs were, mm -hmm. but they saw too often that there were agendas attached to that funding. Mm -hmm. Then when I talked to those countries that provided funding and, and relayed that to them and said, what I thought was a novel and a great compromise, it was let's identify those greatest needs for women in, in these specific countries. Mm -hmm. Let's work together. Let's pool our resources and solve these issues. However, let's leave those controversial issues like abortion off the table. Right. Let's let the countries decide what to do with that. It's part of sovereignty, right? Yeah, that's right. 
let's focus on health. And do you know not a single one of those aid-giving countries would agree to that compromise, which told me there's a problem here. And, and am I mistaken to conclude that over the last year and a half, with the change in administrations, that the, the last point you make, which is that it's more difficult to address women's health in the developing world because of the money that's coming in on the abortion issue, am I overstating that? I wish you were. Okay. No, and unfortunately right now, the U.S. is complicit with this campaign once again. And it's not just unfortunate, it's unconscionable. Mm -hmm. Because organizations, governments, and advocates who say they care about women's health need to show that they care. Right. Not by co-opting that agenda for something else. Right. So just to be really clear, because I, I've learned a lot about this, about the women's health issue, both on the, the policy side, but also on the political side from you over the last few months, that in other words, organizations like yours are trying to assist policymakers in the developing world to focus on, on solving problems, but the well-funded abortion lobby is getting in the way. It's true. Okay. And, and can I just give one example? Please. Just this weekend, working with a particular country mm -hmm. in the developing world. The medical association in that country, a pro-life, pro-women's health country, um, was told that funding could come their way as long as their organization would agree to a, a new policy statement. Mm -hmm. I reviewed that policy statement, and it required that every doctor be trained on providing abortion, mm -hmm. that they would work to change the laws in their country regarding abortion. And it was replete with abortion promotion that was contrary to the laws and contrary to the conscience of many of those physicians who would need to be signing that. And what I found really striking was here was a new policy statement for a medical organization, an association. Mm -hmm. I saw nothing regarding the real problems in that country that addressed the real health needs for women and girls. So it would be nice to think, perhaps naive, that here in the United States, there would be a strong consensus, a strong majority of, of support across the political spectrum that would prioritize women's health before what has become, unfortunately, kind of the policy and political hobby horse of the left, which is abortion. But that's not the case. It's not the case, but the Institute for Women's Health wants to bring that to the forefront and make it the case. Because after all, I think most Americans, in fact, most citizens of any nation around the world would want women's health to focus on women's health. Yes. Imagine that. <laughs> I know. So I think that is a good segue into a question I have, which sort of comes from a, a place of a little bit of ignorance on my part. When we first met, you were mentioning Title X. Of course, we have some scholars at Heritage who work on that. But like a lot of things in policy, I'm not an expert on Title X. That tells me that perhaps not everyone in our smart audience is an expert. Tell us what Title X is, because we see this in the news, right. and tell us why we need to care. Well, Title X is the only program that is specifically devoted in the United States to provide family planning. Mm -hmm. It was begun in 1970 under President Nixon in the era where overpopulation right. seemed to be the issue that had to be dealt with. And so, of course, we need a family planning program. Fast forward now 50 years later, 
and it has become, unfortunately, um, a cash cow for those who not just pro- who provide not only family planning but also f- provide abortion. And in that regard, again, women's health and thriving are set aside far too often, and it becomes a means to another end that's not in the best interest for you that's for right. women. And and I didn't say tell you that I was going to say this. So you're welcome to disagree, but it seems to me just thinking about demographics, that what policymakers in 1970 were worried about, which was overpopulation, it would be nice considering the all of the programs that we're trying to finance, considering the birth rate, considering that we're barely even replacing our population, to have had a population boom in the last half century. Well, I think you bring up a really good point, and that is for many, many years— most of your audience may not be aware, we are below replacement level. And so as a result of that, we need to rethink again what our priorities are. And if programs that have begun 50 years ago need to at the very least be tweaked. Yeah, that's right. That's well said. You handled that really well. So let's let's talk about a little more specifics regarding the Biden, Biden administration. On this issue of women's health, which you deal with every day, what grade would you give them? both their work domestically as well as internationally. In other words, that shouldn't be a Democrat or Republican issue, but it's highly politicized. Unfortunately, it's highly politicized. It should not be the case. Mm -hmm. Why should promoting and expanding the health for women, whether girls or adults, Mm -hmm. why should that be a conservative versus liberal issue? It shouldn't be. I would give the Biden administration a failing grade. Uh, And I'll give you an example that just confounds logic. Mm -hmm. And that is on the eve of Roe v. Wade, um, the White House um, and HHS in particular announced that there was going to be a new task force. Mm -hmm. And that task force... Um, was for reproductive health and rights. But the assistant secretary at HHS said, in not so many words, that abortion was going to be the center of the target for this task force. And again, I scratched my head in utter disbelief that an organization, an agency with tens of thousands of staffers specifically devoting their time to promoting health for Americans across the U.S. and around the world would say that abortion is the center of their priorities for this task force. Something's very wrong with with an analysis and a priority there rather than on health. Well, it, it's, it's unfortunately so clearly the case that, that that's the agenda of the administration. And it isn't just that for people who are watching this who are ardent pro-lifers, this would be problem enough. That is what the administration is doing. It's that it, the radicalism of the administration, and I say that just objectively. I mean, it's, they are historically radical on that issue. That it, it's it's so far afield that it's getting in the way of accomplishing real improvement in women's health, not just internationally, but also here domestically, because things aren't perfect here in the United States. Such a good point. And you know, as I travel to different countries. Mm-hmm. I am hearing something recurring, which is very similar to what you said, and that is 
that that the pressure they are receiving from the United States to change policies that are core to their own values are being prioritized among foreign assistance and working together to actually achieve meaningful positive results for women. We're a women's health organization. We would rather never talk about abortion. We just want to talk about health, and we want to show incremental changes in the positive direction for the health and well-being of young girls and of adult women. That's it. It's not us that wants to talk about abortion. It's those who would dare to co-opt a very meaningful and important um, topic on the altar of abortion. Yeah, and and that's a really clear point. I I think our audience probably would understand that there are many organizations that work on the pro-life issue. If you had your druthers, you wouldn't even have to deal with it at all, right? Absolutely. We would much rather talk about how can we improve, continue a very positive trajectory for women who are about to give birth, or newborn girls who need to have specific advantages given to them in those first thousand days to be able to thrive into adulthood. Those are the areas we'd rather talk about and continue that upward trajectory, rather than saying, why have these things stalled, maybe even moved in the negative direction? And then when we discover it's because other things are taking priority, there's something wrong, and there needs to be accountability for that sort of thing. Well, there must be. So one of our customs on this show, Valerie, is to sort of give people an inside baseball view of a very thorny policy issue, which you've done a great job of yeah. doing. But because that reality sometimes is very challenging, as, as your work is, we always like to conclude on a positive note. So in spite of the challenging reality that you're dealing with presently, might be dealing with in the short-term future, Give our our audience a sense of why you're still optimistic about the work that you're doing. I'm incredibly optimistic, surprisingly enough. And and in part, it's because we have yet to find another organization like the Institute for Women's Health that is working on these policy issues in the same way. And as a result of that, we have more opportunities than we could possibly imagine opportunities that can really translate into accomplishing the goals we have before us. In addition to that, as we work with other countries, they are eager to work with the Institute for Women's Health for the right reasons. That's incredibly optimistic. Well, thanks for your work. Thanks for being here. And the Heritage Foundation looks forward to continuing to help you in any way that we can. Well, we look forward to working with the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Valerie. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my friend Valerie Huber as much as I did. Stay tuned for more. Big tech is out of control. If they can silence the sitting president, what can they do to you? The Heritage Foundation has been on the front lines fighting for free speech. We spotlight big tech censorship, demand reform, and help you fight for your rights. Heritage was the first conservative organization to reject big tech's money because this is too important. We won't be silenced. As Valerie described, actions by the woke left promote issues that directly hurt women and take away funding from services they actually need in rural and developing nations. 
They're more focused on changing the meaning of what it is to be a woman, focused on providing funding for abortion and other so-called issues like climate justice, my favorite, which only undercut actual efforts to give women and young girls the tools for a healthy life, like Valerie and the Institute for Women's Health are actively working to do. It may be no surprise to you because you're smart that the United Nations is one of the primary organizations hurting and not helping women around the globe. For example, consider that radical feminists and their allies in Western governments and in the United Nations have weaponized the annual Commission on the Status of Women and continue to push radical policies and abortion on demand. Worse still, the U.S. delegation is composed of luminaries like Jennifer Klein, director of the White House Gender Policy Council, whatever in the world that does, and Alexandria Villasenor, who I'm sure is very sweet, but she's described as a teenage climate justice activist. From one teacher to another, I would suggest that perhaps something like climate justice activist ceases to exist. Worse still, it does get worse. Yet another group in the United Nations said in a statement that they were framing the gender agenda and abortion as, quote unquote, so you know I'm not exaggerating this, the gender agenda and abortion as, quote unquote, climate justice. So if you, like me, have been sitting around scratching your head wondering how all of these nefarious programs of the left are connected, you're beginning to see that they're very connected in the United Nations. Yet one more example from my favorite organization, the UN. The leader of the UN, the Secretary General, used reports from the International Planned Parenthood Federation and Women Deliver to argue exactly the same. Further, the World Health Organization, embarrassed during the COVID crisis, recently called for abortion to be fully decriminalized, on demand, and wait, wait for this, offered through telemedicine. The WHO also called for conscientious objections by doctors who have trouble, have a, an ethical dilemma with providing abortion services, to be indefensible. Look, there is no other way to put it. This is leftist madness. Official side events by that commission hit on at least two of their priorities of gender ideology, abortion, and climate change. And it's obvious that the United Nations is embracing radical gender ideology, and therefore all of them are denying the realities of biological sex. In short, they're threatening to erase women. But as I always like to do, there's some optimism here. A growing number of brave feminists fear that gender ideology will pulverize the rights of women they have fought to defend. And so what these United Nations entities should do, and frankly what the United States government should force these UN entities to do, is advance pro-woman policies, promote human dignity, and preserve unalienable human rights. But this push for abortion and gender policy undercuts human rights. It isn't about health or empowerment. It's hypocritical, and it undermines what will serve women and young girls best. So look, as we try to do every week on this show, we're going to tell the truth in an unvarnished way. We're hopefully going to tell it in a way that inspires you to recognize a problem and how you might get involved. But we also want to give you at least some dose of optimism that we might be turning the tide. So I'll close it for now for this show. And I want to again thank my guest, Valerie Huber of the Institute for Women's Health. And I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Don't forget to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. And tell a friend. Our movement is for everybody, 
because our solutions are for everybody. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.